and it spread like wildfire. It was not something that we could contain quickly. Cordova experiences its worst outbreak of COVID-19. From Alaska Public Media, this is statewide news on Alaska News Nightly for Friday, July 23rd. Good evening, I'm Lori Townsend. Also tonight, a Seward resident describes surviving a brown bear attack several years ago on the town runway. She came back once while I was on the phone 911 and uh, I heard her claws in the gravel as she walked around and sniffed a little bit. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. The Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is now authorized in the U.S. for anyone 12 years or older. Getting your child immunized with this free, safe, and effective vaccine is a great way to get them safely back to sports, get-togethers, and other fun summer activities. Learn more about COVID-19 vaccines and schedule appointments at covidvax.alaska.gov or call the State of Alaska COVID-19 Vaccine Helpline at 1-833-482-9546. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. A wave of coronavirus infections in the small Prince William Sound community of Cordova has temporarily shut down a seafood processing plant and led to a mask mandate for city workers. City manager Helen Howworth says the virus took hold in Cordova and spread fast, infecting residents as well as dozens of workers at Cam 2's Alaska Wild Seafoods. So COVID got brought into our community by a resident, and that resident wasn't as careful in their interactions with other community members, and pretty soon we had an outbreak on our hands. It's the worst outbreak Cordova has experienced yet. Howworth says the city believes the outbreak did not begin at Alaska Wild Seafoods, but staff there contracted COVID in the community, and then it spread. And it spread like wildfire. It was not something that we could contain quickly. Um, even identify quickly. So all of a sudden we had 70 plus cases and the numbers were going up and and fast. The COVID spike in Cordova comes as much of Alaska experiences a sharp rise in coronavirus cases, including in southeast Alaska, where Sitka is also in the middle of its worst outbreak of the pandemic yet. Health officials say the latest wave of infections is mostly driven by the highly contagious Delta variant infecting unvaccinated people. In Cordova, Howworth says the outbreak is almost exclusively among people who have chosen not to get vaccinated or not to get fully vaccinated. She says while many seafood processors in town require all workers to be vaccinated, Alaska Wild Seafoods just strongly encourages it. There were members of their plant, staff members, who were unvaccinated, and that's the problem. We have several seafood processes here that are requiring vaccination, 100% vaccination, and they are not having problems. Alaska Wild Seafoods did not respond to requests for comment today, but the CEO told the Anchorage Daily News that 35 of the plant's 45 employees are fully vaccinated and just one worker who tested positive sought medical care. The company has temporarily shut down as employees are in isolation and quarantine, forcing it to skip the salmon fishing opener this week. The first large cruise ship to dock in Juneau since 2019 arrived this morning. Juneau residents have mixed feelings about the ship's arrival amid an uptick in COVID-19 cases. But as KTOO's Bridget Dowd tells us, for the most part, the feeling at the dock and in downtown businesses today was one of hope. Yeah, I see some people rolling in with the cameras and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Royal Caribbean's Serenade of the Seas arrived around 7 a.m., carrying less than 650 guests and a little more than 800 crew members. 
In a non-pandemic era, the vessel has room for more than 2,400 passengers, but it's traveling at a reduced capacity. Russ and Casey Radigan walked off the ship around 10 a.m. Traveling from Columbus, Ohio, this was their first time in Alaska and a long-awaited trip. We planned this uh, Alaska cruise like two years ago before the pandemic happened, and it kept on getting canceled and canceled, and uh, this was the first Alaska cruise opportunity that we had, so we decided to take it. The Radigans were on their way to see the Mendenhall Glacier, and they've already been on several whale watches and other wildlife excursions. We saw uh, a number of whales, a number of uh, seals, and a number of otters. And, you know, we thought maybe we'd see one or two, and I think they were waiting for us. Jeremy Schrader was also aboard the Serenade of the Seas, he says despite the circumstances, he felt very safe aboard the ship and comfortable with the COVID-19 protocols that were put in place. Most people are vaccinated. Obviously, the young ones aren't. But um, And I've been pleasantly surprised by everybody still wearing their masks, even though we all are all vaccinated still. So, Of course, with those safety protocols came a much quieter scene at the dock. People were just slowly trickling off the ship, and the booths offering whale watches and other tours were less than half full. Greg Pilcher was manning one of the booths for M&M Tours. It's, it's pretty slow. Yeah, there's like not a whole lot of people on the ship. Um, but I'd say I think we did better than expected. You know, like we wrote a couple tickets, which was great. I think we just wanted to get out here and like practice and remember how to do everything. And it just feels really good that there are people here again because um, it's been like a long two years for sure. Some cruise passengers made their way to the gift shops downtown, like the Bears Lair, where employee Kesa Corpola said she'd already made some sales. There's been a few customers coming through, and I really, really appreciate that they're mostly masked up. Um, I think they got the word on the boat that, that it was respectful for, to do that, and most of them have been very respectful. And they, if they're not masked, they ask if they should be. After Juno, the Serenade of the Seas was scheduled to dock in Ketchikan before stopping in Sitka for a second time on Wednesday, where another ship will also be in port. In Juno, I'm Bridget Dowd. Kelly Shibaka is campaigning to unseat U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski, and she's pitching herself as the rightful Republican in the race. Shibaka has the backing of the state party and of former President Trump. But as Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin reports, campaign finance reports show Murkowski still has a comfortable spot in the Republican fold. The primary election is more than a year from now, and it'll be conducted under new rules that largely ignore a candidate's party affiliation. But Shibaka says she's already the Republican Party's chosen candidate. With these two moves of the Republican Party to censure Lisa Murkowski and then to endorse me for the U.S. Senate race, it was like the Republican Party took the party primary process into their own hands. Murkowski has crossed Republicans on a host of high-profile issues. The state party's censure came after she voted in February to impeach Trump. Murkowski said she put American principles over party. And if that doesn't have value... Then what kind of a party are we? Trump calls Murkowski disloyal. State party leaders want her to quit identifying herself as a Republican candidate. But Murkowski still has powerful Republican support outside the state. 
Murkowski's fundraising report for the second quarter shows a pair of $5,000 contributions from Bluegrass PAC. That's the political action committee of the Senate's top Republican, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The Bluegrass contributions came in April, weeks after Chewbacca launched her campaign, and one of them was specifically to help Murkowski win the primary. The National Republican Senatorial Committee is supporting Murkowski, too. That's the Capitol Hill Committee devoted to getting and keeping Republican senators, with millions of campaign dollars to spend. CNN's Ted Barrett asked McConnell about it this spring. Can I ask you, will the NRSC support Lisa Murkowski, uh, despite President Trump saying that uh, they should get rid of all of these Republicans who voted against him on impeachment? Yeah, absolutely. An NRSC spokesman affirmed that the committee will support all Republican senators, including Murkowski, in her primary race. Murkowski has not yet launched an official re-election campaign, but her fundraising suggests she will. She's raised $1.5 million this year, double Chewbacca's tally. Chewbacca notes another difference. She's only got 6% of her total funds raised being from actual Alaskans. Whereas half of our funds raised so far from actual Alaskans. Murkowski's campaign finance report reflects the power of incumbency. Political action committees representing industry and corporations contributed a substantial amount. And members of Congress have their own political action committees called leadership PACs that help cement political alliances. At least nine of Murkowski's Republican colleagues in the Senate contributed to her through their leadership PACs. None has yet given to her challenger. Reporting from Washington, I'm Liz Ruskin. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, a new app allows fishermen to contribute their ocean observations to science. We're out here all the time and we see weird stuff. We just think, well, everybody knows there was pollock floating around that year, right? Well, they don't. That's ahead. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Alaska USA has been on a journey with Alaskans since their first member account was opened in 1948. They'll be with you every step of the way through the challenges of today and the hopes of tomorrow. AlaskaUSA.org. This message sponsored by Alaska USA. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Canada plans to open its border next month to fully vaccinated U.S. citizens. The Canadian government has released a list of requirements for non-essential travelers that you'll need to meet before you can get through the border. KHNS's Mike Swayze has the details. Skagweegians have longed for the day they can drive over the White Pass and into Canada for about as long as the pandemic-related border restrictions have been in place. Well, that day will finally arrive Monday, August 9th. Businesses in Carcross, the next town north in Canada's Yukon Territory, are ready for Skagway traffic as well. Bonnie O'Connor, co-owner of Matthew Watson General Store in downtown Carcross, says that though they are open for business on the weekends, additional traffic will be welcomed. You know, the shelves have been dusted off and uh, we've got stuff for sale and 
we're ready. In order to be admitted into Canada, U.S. citizens will need a negative molecular COVID-19 test within 72 hours of reaching the border. In Skagway, the Dahl Memorial Clinic offers rapid testing free of charge by appointment only. The Skagway Traditional Council offers free tests as well, but it may take multiple days to get the results. In Haines, Search offers a rapid test for $145. The sliding scale fee structure would apply to any Search patients, and insurance companies may cover testing as well, but it's best to check your individual policy. All travelers may be subjected to a random rapid test at the border, which could add an additional 20 to 30 minutes of wait time to the trip. After you have your testing complete, you'll need to register with ArriveCan. The app is a free download for smartphones through the Canada.ca website. It can also be accessed through a web portal. However, be wary of sites that ask for a payment. There are several third-party hoax sites that charge money. ArriveCan is free to use. Finally, make sure you have all travel documents with you, including a passport and vaccination card. The Canadian Customs agent will need to check those documents and your ArriveCan status. The program will store your information and can be accessed offline after all information is uploaded. ArriveCan gives you a 72-hour window prior to arrival at the border to upload your information. Photos of both your passport and your vaccine card will be required. Any forged vaccination records will be subject to a $750,000 fine and up to six months imprisonment under Canada's Quarantine Act. Only fully vaccinated travelers will be allowed to enter. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines all meet the requirements. According to Canadian officials, tour operators will be allowed to bring groups into Canada if all group passengers meet the same regulations as individual passengers, but the logistics of getting everyone tested ahead of time seems daunting to local tour operator Billy Clem, who owns Klondike Tours. I have no idea how we're going to get all that testing done. In order to be properly prepared, any cruise ship passengers that wanted to book a trip to Canada would need to test within 72 hours of arriving in Skagway. But there is no word yet if that can be done on board the ships. Re-entry for American citizens back into the United States will not change. According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, all U.S. citizens that enter Canada will be welcomed back home to the United States upon return. But vaccinated Canadians? They'll be barred from crossing the U.S. border for non-essential travel until at least August 21st. Reporting from Skagway, I'm Mike Swayze. By the end of the week, Juno's Downtown Emergency Shelter and Soup Kitchen plans to be serving all of its patrons at its new facility on the other side of town. KTOO's Jeremy Shea visited the old and new Glory Hall facilities to learn more about the move. Let me tell you here. This is our kitchen. Robert Padrina works at the Glory Hall as a cook and cleaner. He shows me around the mostly empty building downtown. The new kitchen isn't ready yet, so he'll still be cooking here for a while. But meals will be delivered to the new building beginning later this week. Uh, walk in. Where do we get the food? Space is tight in the kitchen area. The day room sounds spacious. Before this, in this area, people can eat. Right. But that's because it's empty. It's been closed since the pandemic because it's too cramped to keep enough distance between people to meet health guidance for limiting the spread of COVID-19. 
The shelter has been renting a bigger space next door as a day room and to serve meals. It will shut down this week, too, as the new space opens on Teal Street near the airport. Out the back door, one of the few people still staying here is waiting on some laundry. Gerald S. James, nicknamed Speedy. James says he works part-time in the evening and has been helping a bit with the Glory Hall's move. He's a little sentimental about the old building. Being here has changed me. When I was working, I was alcoholic. As he tells it, his life took a bad turn a few years ago after he lost a restaurant job in town that he'd had for decades. He says he was drinking a lot of hard alcohol and living on the streets. He says he started staying at the downtown Glory Hall a few years ago, and he's still drinking, but says he gets by with beers now instead of hard liquor. He says he's tapering himself down. I started to realize, I don't want to be like this. I don't want to be like this. I want to live a long life. Luke Roman is the Glory Hall's program manager. He shows me around the new place, where work is still underway. So this is our day room you walk into. So it feels kind of like a college residence hall. On the ground floor, there's the day room, kitchen, storage, and office space, plus an elevator. The old glory hall was not wheelchair accessible. On the second floor, there's a laundry room, a hallway of individual bathrooms and showers, and the bedrooms. Some have curtains up temporarily, where doors will eventually go. The rooms are small and spartan, but they're individual rooms. No bunks. Um, I think giving people their own space is going to be huge for, you know, people's mental health and well-being. Like, a lot of these people are never alone at this point, you know. They sleep either at the warming shelter, at the glory hall, in rooms with people, and then they hang out all day in the glory hall, and maybe the only, you know, 10 minutes they get alone every day is, like, going on a walk or something. Roman says it's more dignified. Maria Loveshuk is the glory hall's executive director. The facility is really amazing, and I think what it means to me is the ability to provide folks with a space that's not traumatizing and that's beautiful. She says moving people into the new building is like a dream come true. It's taken years of work from many people in the community. She says a grand opening event is in the works. In Juneau, I'm Jeremy Shea. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by Alaska Pipeline Service Company proud of its ties to Prince William Sound communities. It's time to pursue college and career dreams. The Alaska Commission on Post-Secondary Education offers low-cost student education loans to turn these dreams into a reality for Alaskans. Visit acpe.alaska.gov today to begin on your path for a brighter tomorrow. This message sponsored by Alaska Commission on Post-Secondary Education. Fishermen have observed changes in ocean ecosystems for years, but there was no one place to record those observations. This summer, a new mobile app will gather information from commercial fishermen to bridge the gap between what they see and what scientists need to know. Stephanie Malterich reports from Dillingham. Katie Bursch is a commercial fisherman who set nets each summer on the Ugashik River. Several years ago, she noticed water temperatures in the Ugashik were warming. So she started to monitor them on her boat. In 2019, we had a lot of dead fish, pre-spawn fish die in Yashik rivers because the river was too warm. So that really got me going on trying to, um, you know, kind of start monitoring that because it seemed like our river and the Agushik River were very susceptible, like more susceptible than other places. And so I really wanted to try and get a handle on that. She's continued to document and report her observations. But she says it's not always easy to find the right scientists to communicate her data to on pollock, whales, or seabirds. 
I take note of a lot of biological changes I see, but then the problem is you have to find the right person to report it to. And you end up making six phone calls and you just get passed around. This summer, a new app called Skipper Science aims to bridge the gap between fishermen and scientists. Fishermen can log climate change observations on the water that will upload to a large database accessible by scientists. Dr. Lauren Devine and Lindsay Bloom collaborated to bring the app to life. Devine is the Director of Ecosystems Conservation for the Aliot Community of St. Paul Island. Bloom is the campaign strategist for Salmon State, an advocacy organization based in Juneau. The Skipper Science app is rooted in Devine's previous environmental monitoring projects with tribal communities. She says Skipper Science is a well-known field in other Arctic countries where it's common for fishermen to partner with researchers. So we created Skipper Science uh, to be a tool that fishermen in Alaska could use to contribute scientific observations, but also local and traditional knowledge and observations to a um, single location database where all of that could be compiled and used to um, help advocate for uh, healthy oceans and sustainable futures for our local communities. So far, 100 fishermen have downloaded the app and are documenting their observations out on the water. Fisherman Katie Birch continues to make observations this summer. She hasn't tried the app yet, but she's excited about its potential. You know, we think that we're out here all the time and we see weird stuff. We just think, well, everybody knows there was Pollock floating around that year, right? Well, they don't. Like, the, the getting the information back to the people who are actually working on those things is pretty few and far between. And so I think people's information is valuable. Divine and Bloom haven't started sifting through the data yet, but they will have more information about the app's success in the fall when fishermen return from a summer on the water. In Dillingham, I'm Stephanie Maltrich. Five years ago this fall, Ron Hemstock went for his regular 6 a.m. walk around the airport runway in Seward. It wasn't long before that morning stroll with his dog turned terrifying. Ron is one of many Alaskans who've responded to our call for bear encounter stories this summer, and what a story he has. Hemstock is a retired wrestling coach in Seward. He says it was the first really cold day of the year, so he was bundled to the gills, and it was very dark. And I just started walking my dog, and I called my brother to tell him all the news. My daughter was getting married, and I was all excited, and I was telling him all this fun story, and that was that was where it all kind of started. <laughs> How did you first realize that you were in trouble? Uh, my dog, he uh, he came out of the dark and ran right between my legs, and he, you know, had his hackles up and his ears down, his tail down, and he was hauling the mail. And I knew something wasn't right. I, and I had my head up like this, talking on the phone, and I just kind of looked over my shoulder, and the bear was maybe 20, 25 meters behind me, just barreling like a steamroller. Half a ton of angry pot roast, you know. <laughs> you know, I didn't have enough time to do anything but turn and get tackled. How were you able to get help in that situation, as you just described it, where you had no chance to do anything but be attacked? Well, you know, I uh, I just kind of put up with the beating for a minute, minute and a half, something like that. And when she finally decided she was done with me, she dragged me off the runway and kind of buried me up a little bit. And I thought, oh, great, because that means she's she's going to come back later, which gives me a time break. And, uh, and when I opened my eyes, she had dragged me back to my phone. <laughs> 
So the phone was within arm's reach. So I was able to pull my phone in and call my wife and call 911 and get people launched. And and then it got scary. Up until then, I hadn't been scared. I was just kind of in the moment. But then it's like the people who sat in that, was it, I can't remember which, the Missouri is it, the one they talk about, the sharks eating everybody in World War II and they were waiting their turn. That's how I felt. It was like, she's going to come back. And she did. She came back once while I was on the phone, 911. And... Uh, I heard her claws in the gravel as she walked around and sniffed a little bit. And then she disappeared and my dog came back and I felt pretty good about that. Uh, if he'll sit next to me, then I'm probably pretty safe. So you were on the phone with 911 and you heard the bear coming back. Yep. And I couldn't get the guy to go quiet. I said, shh, quiet, quiet, quiet. I had to stick the phone under my chest and lay back down on the ground and cover my head. And I thought I was in for round two. But she just walked by and disappeared. And I didn't know which way. And when the police showed up, Officer Woodard, what a guy, he got out and he said it was so dark, he couldn't see past the end of his barrel. And so he just stood astride me with a shotgun in his hand, back to the car, drove right over me, and just we just waited until the ambulance showed up. I can't imagine being able to lay still like that after you've been attacked once, you hear the bear coming back. What was in your mind, if you can recall it, that you were able to keep yourself still because that fight or flight response, as you know, is really strong. Oh, it is. It is. And I did the wrong thing because I, fl- I fled. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was pretty beaten down by that point, and I just didn't want a second run. And I figured that when I went quiet, I was yelling in the phone to my brother, and I think my voice antagonized the bear. The attack was much more vicious while I was screaming into the phone. But once the phone dropped... And I was just myself, I covered up, I went quiet, and she kind of let it go. Is there anything that you learned that will that you would do differently next time if something like this hopefully uh, yeah, doesn't happen again? Yeah, to the public, so to speak. Um, I, I think that being quiet, they always say play dead. Well, I think that includes don't vocalize. As much as you can, don't vocalize, because I think that just incites the bearer. And I truly, when I went quiet, truly quiet, she jumped on me, cracked a few ribs, dragged me off, and that was the end of it. But up until then, I'd been screaming into my phone and, and, and yelling when she was clawing and beating at me and ripping my coat. And I think that was inciting more violence. So I would recommend biting your tongue and just trying as hard as you can not to make any noise. Easier said than done, I'm sure. But beyond the wonderful fact that you lived through the experience— there was also a, a bit of a, a humorous event that happened uh, with the bear stepping on your back and acting sort of as a chiropractor. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had been teaching some wrestling moves in practice, I don't know, a week or so earlier and popped a rib out. And my chiropractor, to jump off the ceiling, couldn't get that thing to move. And I was just living in pain. And when she jumped on my back the first time, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the next time she broke a few ribs and that wasn't so pleasant. But it, it felt a lot better after that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is amazing that the bear put your rib back in place. Well, Ron, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and glad to see you here in person and that you're doing okay. Oh, yeah, I'm doing great. And, you know, life's just a lot happier since then, too. You know, when you think you're not going to have any more of it, you tend to appreciate it more when you get it back. I'm sure of that. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you very much.
Ron Hemstock lives in Seward. His story is part of a series we're doing. And if you have a bear story you'd like to share, we want to hear from you. Email us, news at alaskapublic.org, or go to alaskapublic.org engage. And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. We had reports tonight from Tegan Hanlon in Anchorage, Liz Ruskin in Washington, D.C., Mike Swayze in Skagway, Bridget Dowd and Jeremy Shea in Juneau, and Stephanie Malterich in Dillingham. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or comment, email us, news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Tobin Shelby. Annie Fight is our producer tonight. And I'm Lori Townsend. Have a great weekend. Alaska News Nightly was made possible in part by your local public radio station. Public media is designed for and made possible by the communities it serves. Monies generated through estate and deferred gifts enable public radio to provide our listeners, you, with the level of programming excellence you've come to expect. It may also reduce income and estate taxes. Consult your financial advisor or contact your public radio station to learn more. This is Statewide News on Alaska Public Media.